0: So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Carlos Durio, who's a distinguished professor of medicine in the division of infectious diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and executive associate dean for Emory at Grady. He's also a professor of global health in the department of global health, professor of epidemiology at the Rowland School of Public Health, and his research focuses on early diagnosis, access to care, engagement to care, and uh, compliance with antiretrovirals, and like many of rest of us, has expanded to address the new challenges brought on by the COVID nineteen epidemic. Over to you.
1: Thank you, Elaine, and and thank you for the invitation to participate in this uh, in this meeting. Uh, over the next uh, hours, I'm going to talk about sort of the collateral damage of COVID nineteen on on patient care, and I'm going to go beyond HIV. Really talk about patient care, just because we cannot dissociate HIV care from everything else. This is my disclosure. So I'll be describing the impact of COVID on medical care, describing the cost of delaying care, and the future of of care post-COVID. Try to put my crystal ball and do that. So I think we all remember, you know, it's just barely a year ago, March 13th, there was a declaration of a national emergency in response to COVID-19, Immediately there was shelter in place and stay-at-home orders that follow in some jurisdictions. And, uh, and this led to significant disruptions in delivery of routine medical care uh, that, that occurred uh, quite rapidly. So the questions that come up to all of us is what is the impact of the pandemic on patients and patient care? Uh, how are systems adopting? And what are the financial impact of the pandemic on the health system and providers? So one of the first publications that appeared uh, came in in MMWR and in June of of 2020, the MMWR published a a study showing that four in 10 U.S. adults had avoided medical care because of concerns of COVID-19. And when you look at at that uh, a little more carefully, what you find is that you are are seeing a decrease, a dramatic decrease in emergency department visits for things like, you know, the ERs were all of a sudden strokes, heart attacks. Uh, uncontrolled diabetes was simply not, not coming in. And all of us and healthcare said, well, you know, we know the patients are there. They're just not coming. It's not like there was an epidemic of healthiness all of a sudden. And obviously that has implications. So who was less likely to, to come to care? When you look at this, uh, uh, this study in which you look at adjusted prevalence ratios, what you see is that younger people, um, uh, African Americans and Hispanics, uh, people that had, uh, some disability, people that had two or more underlying conditions and, and people who uh, uh, who were caregivers to other adults were less likely to, to come to care and basically avoided care. So that led obviously to a rapid drop in, in emergency room visits. And you can see here in the light blue line, emergency room visits for 2019. And then you can see in the darker blue emergency room visits for 2020, and you can see that they were actually higher in the early months, and then very rapidly went down and and stayed down. Now, as emergency room visits uh, decreased dramatically, you know, 41.5% in Colorado, 63.5% in New York. As you can see in the study, uh, you also saw a, a rapid increase in COVID cases and COVID hospitalizations. But hospitalizations for other diseases uh, Decline during that time. And in fact, what you saw across uh, the nation is a decrease in admissions uh, uh, for non-COVID admissions, and because COVID admissions went up, the net effect was the total admissions uh, even when, then went down, but then started to, to come up slowly afterwards, but they still have not recovered. We saw, therefore, a, a other implications, a 50% reduction in referrals from primary care for possible cancer. A cancer screening program is essentially stopped. I mean, colonoscopy programs and other programs essentially stopped. And and this decrease in emergency department visits uh, translates in probably a 34% decrease in in presentations for stroke, 32% in TIA, 64% in unstable angina, and 36% in seizures. So all in all, all, hospitalizations for non-COVID conditions decrease significantly. Now, this also translated into a significant decrease in outpatient visits, which impacted many of us, including those of us providing HIV care. And as you can see, you know, face-to-face clinic visits went down and and telephone and and video visits started to to go up. But the number of people that went up, it just wasn't enough to explain the difference. And when you look at procedures, for example, in the study, you know, a, a lot of procedures went down as well. Now... What was What is thought to be, what is going to be the impact of what we're seeing on on counseling treatment for chronic uh, conditions and this episodic care? Well, you know, if you look at the consequences, we think that it's going to be fairly significant for cancer. It's going to have some impact on heart disease. It's going to have a fairly significant impact on lung disease and may not have a lot of impact in, in diabetes and hypertension. And in the study done by by McKinsey, they think that overall the, the cost of providing uh, care for many diseases is actually going to become higher. So what we expect to see is actually an increase in the cost of care for many of these conditions, anywhere between, you know, 2% to 9% across multiple chronic conditions. What has happened to outpatient care uh, since then? Well, you know, Again, as I mentioned to you, outpatient care essentially stopped you know, in March and then slowly started coming up again. But when you look at it more carefully, the the impact and who came back to care, it was really people over the age of 65. If you look at care for younger people, if you look at coming back to care for kids zero to two years or for those three to five years, that really did not happen. And as a result of that, what we've seen in our country is a significant reduction in, in in childhood immunizations. And the the decrease in childhood immunizations as a result of, of the lockdown and of the medical, you know, the, the U.S. emergency declaration has been significant. And we're gonna have a, a, uh, a significant drop in, in childhood immunizations that even though it has rebounded, it's still not quite where it was in the past. So we have not seen really that return to normal in childhood immunizations. Now, how about uh, STD care? Well, you know, the declines in STD care have been quite significant, and 28% of STDs, you know, STD and HIV testing sites, for example, in San Luis region closed, and and 63% operated on a modified schedule. And as a result, there was a 53% decline in chlamydia testing, a 33% decline in gonorrhea testing, and a 33% decline in syphilis testing in this study presented at the STD Prevention Conference. At CROI, there were several sessions dedicated to this, and the ones that strike me the most as the most important are really the significant drop in HIV testing, HIV viral load, and PrEP engagements that we have seen. And despite, again, there there have been rebounds, we have not returned to pre-pandemic levels. And if you look specifically, for example, at decrease in PrEP, PrEP prescriptions, uh, the, the predicted percent of reductions in PrEP prescriptions have ranged from 60, 16.2% in Georgia to 31.2% in Massachusetts. And in, in the predicted percent reduction in new PrEP users have ranged from 18.2% in Texas and 47.2% in Illinois. And I think what you find if you look at this data is that we've been able to continue people that were on PrEP, but starting new PrEP starts have really gone down. Now, you can imagine if HIV testing is reduced, uh, then also linkages to care are reduced. As a result of that, a similar thing has happened in HIV care in which we have, uh, you know, managed to continue providing antiretrovirals to a lot of our patients who are already engaged in care. But for those that have episodic care, for those that were newly diagnosed or who could have been newly infected, we really have not been able to get them back, to get them into care. Now, substance use disorder has also been impacted in a significant way in substance use disorder care. Uh, as, a, as a result of, of COVID, uh, and during the lockdown, we have seen an increase of over 25% in alcohol sales. Uh, analysis of urine drugs tests have shown a 32% increase in non-fentanyl prescriptions, a 20% increase in, in meth, in meth, and a 10% increase in cocaine that have occurred from, from March through May. And, uh, and also what has happened is drug use has gotten riskier. You know, your, your the drug dealer used to get your drug for it from, it may not be the same one. And therefore you may get, get a different drug. You may get a different, uh, um, uh, formulation. You may get a higher dose. You may get a contaminated drug. And so our salt drug overdoses have increased 18%. And you can see that in this, this graph over here, where you can see that, that the, uh, that after the uh, declaration of a, of a of a national emergency on March 13th, you saw a rapid rise in, in, in fentanyl and in other drugs uh, uh, overdoses. And this has translated into a 42% increase uh, a, a per month during the pandemic compared to similar months in 2019. And you look at, you know, uh, Overall, it's almost a 50% year-to-year increase by the month of May. So, again, this is simply a lot of overdose uh, that that has occurred as a result of the pandemic. Mental health is another area that has been significantly impacted, with over 40% of U.S. adults reporting, you know, struggling with mental health and substance use issues. And this is particularly relevant in young people. And you can see people between the ages of 16 and 39 really being significantly impacted by 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 anxiety, depression, and, and substance use. Now as far as as, as mental health in older individuals, um, you you gotta realize that you know in, in nursing homes, for example, you know, there is an important desire to for for human contact. And there was this huge conflict between you know protecting and shelter, you know, sheltering older people so they wouldn't get infected. And would, you know, the withdrawal from family contact and the loneliness and stress that that caused. And this is a really delicate balance between, you know, protective isolation and and contact under appropriate safety measures. And in addition to that, well, children and adolescents were at at high risk of of domestic violence and abuse. Mm -hmm. So what has been done to try to solve these issues? Well, you know, for once, it's obviously the rise in telemedicine. And, you know, for years, we have been talking about telemedicine in our country. But it really took a pandemic for telemedicine to really take off, as you can see here. And you can see the number of percent of visits from telemedicine really went up uh, quite rapidly, quite significantly. And uh, and this uh, this went across uh, different fields, you know, whether it's behavioral health or different areas. this the increase in telemedicine was quite significant. But but telemedicine is not without challenges, and I think the, the we need to remember those. And I think you can divide the challenges in four major ones. You know, first of all, is sort of the digital divide. You know, the lack of broadband internet access, the lack of data plans, the lack of many of our patients uh, who don't have the, the appropriate uh, telephones to make. As I tell people in order to do telemedicine, you have to have a teleF to start with. Uh, there, have, there are significant restrictions in mental uh, health services, for example, around telemedicine. There are state level regulations. And I've heard, for example, you know, if you're not licensed in Alabama, but I'm licensed in Georgia. I have a patient from Alabama. It's almost like the patient has to cross a state line in order for me to see them. And there are a lot of regulations from private insurance that were, were limiting the access to telemedicine. As far as substance use disorder, uh, SAMHSA and the DA in, implemented some important programs. You know, For one, SAMHSA issued rapidly guidelines and guidance to increase the ability to prescribe opioids and to transfer opioid uh, treatment programs uh, to take home methadone maintenance protocols. And the DEA allows for the first time teleprescribing of buprenorphine in a two-way audiovisual communication between the prescriber and the patient. And again, it's just fine, except for patients who do not have adequate data plans to make a two-way audiovisual communication possible. So as this this uh, excellent blog in the um, in BMJ, this opinion post in BMJ last October said, you know, dealing with the collateral damage of COVID is, is not just all about cure, it's about care. And I think the care of patients really was, has been impacted quite significantly for all diseases. Uh, hospitals face also significant challenges. I think COVID, COVID we have seen in all our healthcare systems how hospitals have tried to balance the complex uh, complexities of COVID care with resumptions of normal medical operations and staffing shortages from sickness, from physical and emotional exhaustion have been real. And there's logistical issues of vaccine distribution and hesitancy right now happening. And I think this has all led to exacerbation of health disparities. And in addition to that, you're seeing, you know, hospital financial instability as a result of this. So what are the, uh, uh, what has been, what has happened? Well, you know, I think, Policies to reduce care to only absolutely essential treatments and appointments had widespread consequences. And we need to acknowledge that. What we all knew it was important to do this, this obviously had consequences. Uh, Home care uh, care visits also were impacted because the nurses were very concerned about acting acting as super spreaders. And a lot of chronically ill patients delayed requisite care and they didn't fill prescriptions or or they didn't receive life-saving procedures deemed to be elective. And as a result of this delayed uh, visits, treatment and procedures for chronic diseases, we're going to see the cost of care in general go up over the, over the next few years. <clears throat> I think a return to pre-pandemic models of care are unlikely, uh, and, and there will be a, a ubiquitous ad- adoption of virtual care and telehealth. And I think we need to really think that the new model of care is not going to be the model of care we had in the past. Or what we have right now, and finding that balance, I think, is going to be important for all of us to find in our clinics. Significant care will move from 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 hospital or from clinics to homes and to the community. And I think there's this sort of a new normal would require healthcare organizations to rethink uh, how do we how do we accelerate transformation. I think a lot of health systems have talked about transformation and and doing more in the community, but really hadn't done it. And I think COVID offers the opportunity to do that. And yes, I'll probably end by saying that strengthening primary care and addressing non-communicable diseases is more important than ever. I think if COVID has changed, shown us something, is that we have to address obesity, we have to address hypertension, have to address diabetes, and all those other diseases that, are, that we're spending a lot of time, and even with our patients with HIV, and I think it becomes a reality that we need to really take these issues into into front and center as much as we do you know, making sure their viral loads are suppressed and other things that we normally do in our clinics and thinking about how we holistically address non-communicable diseases, I think is gonna be critically important going forward. And with that, uh, Elaine, I I will end and and open up for questions.
0: Oh, fantastic, Uh, a a tour de forces as always. Um, There aren't any questions yet, but I actually have a, a, a couple for you. Um, I'm, I'm wondering you've really focused on the the uh, local or the, the U.S. experience. Um, have you seen any any data um, particularly around HIV service delivery yeah.
1: globally? Yeah, there, I, I didn't I didn't put that Elaine in, in yeah. the presentation, but there are a couple of, of of nice studies in Lancet I can think of at least at least two that have looked at this. And there were several presentations at at Croix related to global. HIV care. I think you know globally what we're seeing are two things. I think in in initially in the pandemic, in many African countries where they were not seeing a lot of cases, I think they had a little more time to prepare. Right. I think I think that almost here in the U.S., we we closed the the so quickly. We went from like everything normal to everything shut down so quickly that 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 created enormous shock. I think a lot of places had a little more time to think, to plan, to adopt, to adjust. I also think that that a lot of, of places in providing global care uh, had a lot more nimble approaches to care than we have in a way a lot less uh, restricted approaches but but telemedicine is is not as, as ubiquitous in other places so I think it's been a, a mixed bag I think the overall challenge is is that I do think that our global a aim to to really impact of the, the AIDS epidemic globally is going to be significantly impacted. And I, I don't think we're going to realize how severe this disruption of HIV care is going to be until several years from now, until I was telling somebody today, until the dust settles, I don't think we'll understand what the reality is.
0: And um, we have a, a couple of questions. Um, someone is asking if there's any information regarding on how much the reduction in healthcare visits um, and sort of health service delivery was due to loss of coverage versus the lockdown
1: or perhaps the contribution of loss of in- insurance. You know, I think, I think contribution, loss of insurance probably played a role, but I do think that it was just a lockdown that just, you know, essentially closed clinics closed. We told patients not to come to the hospital. We said all oh, essential services, non-essential services are, are closed. And I think that had a significant impact.
0: Another question: whether there are any signs that um, the Ryan White program, the CMS or insurers may fund interventions to support engagement in care post-COVID. So funding for mobile phones or other structural supports that many have found helpful during this time.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think the Ryan White program has, has really looked into ways to, to make this uh, more more possible. And I think they've done our nice job. I think Ryan White has has really helped with with finding, uh, you know, how to get people homeless people into care. How to address what's going on. How to make sure that that we are able to provide care to those that need it the most.
0: Yeah, there's a, another um, question, quite interesting about um, whether our um, vaccine roll- rollout has whether any lessons learned there that we could take take forward. You know, I think,
1: you know, I think in in vaccine rollout, what I've seen is that, uh, you know, vulnerable populations like our patients trust their doctors. And I think what we've seen, at least in our clinic, is when we have done COVID vaccinations in our HIV clinic, people come and, and, and get them. They want to get vaccinated. They trust what happens in the clinic. And that's much better than saying, go somewhere else to get your vaccine. So I think... You know, we have been providers of all care for for our patients, and I think doing the COVID care and the COVID vaccination is also important.
0: Yeah, there are any data comparing HIV outcomes uh, telehealth versus in person?
1: I'm not aware of any published, but I can tell you that I know several people are looking at that. So I've seen studies and other things.
0: Um. And someone notes that so many of our ED visits are for non-emergent conditions. Were those visits impacted more or less than other you know, types of visits?
1: You know, I think they were all impacted. What we're seeing, at least in our healthcare system now, and I've heard this from several other people, is the ED visits and the ED volume is coming up. But what's coming up is not uh, what's coming up is not the the sort of non-urgent. Uh, Visits that we used to have. What's coming up is the urgent visits. So in a way, that's good. We want the sort of we want the non the non urgent care not to come to the ER. We want that to go to clinic or to be done through telemedicine. So it may be that post COVID we have a very different population of people. I mean, I think a lot of people are using the ER as primary care. And can we transition people to having more telemedicine and other ways to get primary care? I think that will be an opportunity that we really have to expand.
0: Um, a number of people are are sharing sharing resources and uh, commenting on job loss and the impact on health insurance. Somebody is asking, and I'm not sure this something you'll know the answer to whether insurance companies. Oh yeah, so
1: insurance companies did great last year. There's no doubt about that. You can look at their financial statements and their presentations. Insurance companies did great last year, and they did great because they were not paying for you know. Expensive things, you know, joint replacements and big surgeries and all these things that cost a lot of money. So actually, insurance companies did really well last year. Okay, do you
0: do you have any final comments you'd like to share with us? And
1: you know, I think I think that I think that sort of the sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? I mean, the good is I think the COVID disruption is 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 an opportunity to to rethink and re, re sort of reimagine the way we do care and i think telemedicine is here to stay it may not be for everybody but it's clearly here to stay i think the way we we think about providing care for our patients hopefully can get more simplified and and we can look at better ways to do that I, I i think the that's in a way the good i think the the bad is that we're going to see we're probably going to see an increase in 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 hiv you know infections and we're going to see in disruptions in care and in, in Patients losing their antiretroviral, their their virologic suppression as a result of this. And I think the impact on on end the epidemic and, and many of the other initiatives, I think, is gonna be significant. And we don't have quant not quantified, but I think it's gonna be real. And and I think the the ugly is that that disparities of care are driving HIV, are driving COVID, are driving a lot of the problems that we have. And I think the reality is if we don't in this country take, you know. Uh, disparities in, in in care and outcomes and in health equity seriously. I don't think we're going to be we're going to be back in the same place again. I mean we we seem to be making the same mistake over and over. But I think COVID offers us the opportunity to to really do something about health inequities. But I'm, I'm worried that that I, once again once COVID is over we're going to go back to where we were before and, and kind of talk about it but do very little about it. And I think if one place has done a lot around health inequities, you know. Is, is HIV, HIV through Ryan White and through PEPFAR globally. It's actually a place where health equity has happened more than in any other diseases. And I think there's an opportunity to even do more in addressing COVID. So I think our that's, in a way, the reason why I think many of us in HIV care have become, you know, very involved in COVID. is because we deeply care about health equity. And I think we have an opportunity to really make a difference there.
0: I'm not known as an optimist, but I I think that this issue has been raised to a a level of discussion and sort of public attention that if there was ever a chance to start addressing it, um, now's the time. So um, on that, I'll I'll thank you very much for another splendid talk. And um, I'd like to move on and introduce our last speaker.